0: My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zionstone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. This morning, I'm going to be preaching primarily from the passage from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, and my sermon title this morning is, The Worst Sinner. Many years ago, I was visiting a friend's, a new friend's church, and as part of their liturgy, they pray a prayer before they take communion, which quotes directly from the text from 1 Timothy that Al read to us this morning. It's specifically from verse 15, where St. Paul says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But we heard the NIV, so I think it was I am the worst. Some translations say the chiefest. Some translations say the first. You get the point. And the prayer that they pray before receiving communion says this. I believe, O Lord, and I confess that thou art truly the Christ the son of god who came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the first who can- <clears throat> i believe that this is truly thine own pure body and thine own precious blood therefore i pray have mercy upon me and forgive my transgressions both voluntary and involuntary of word and of deed of knowledge and of ignorance and make me worthy to partake without condemnation of thy holy mysteries unto the remission of sins and unto life everlasting amen i remember the first time i heard that it, it that prayer it, it moved me and it's a prayer I still uh, pray myself when I know I'm about to approach the table and the altar of the Lord, as we will be this morning. To To voluntarily confess to God that one is the worst, or the chiefest, or the foremost sinner, even when they may not be, strikes against the therapeutic bent of our modern culture. Because our culture will tell us things like, you are enough or whatever version of that is popular at this current moment. And to the young people here this morning, I will not try and sound cool by trying to imitate any of those sayings or phrases because it will just come across as totally lame. So I will spare you. But St. Paul's words to Timothy, adapted for prayer, cuts through all of the baggage of our culture, and we see the true state of, of who and what we are. But we also then see the extravagant love and mercy of God in response. And it's important to note, right, that whenever we talk about about sin or being sinners, we must always remember to never overemphasize that and minimize the love and the mercy and the compassion and the grace and the forgiveness found in Christ. St. Paul started off his selection with a contrast. He says that Christ has judged me faithful and has appointed me to his service. And Christ has done this in spite of who and what St. Paul used to be. And St. Paul actually lists this, what I used to be. A blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. That's strong language, a blasphemer a persecutor, an insolent op- opponent, a blasphemer. Take, you know, somebody who, who takes the name of the Lord in vain. Someone who utters profane things about God. A persecutor, someone who is oppressive and an insolent opponent. An insolent opponent, someone who's intractable. Someone you can't talk to. Someone dead set in their opposition towards you. And Scripture gives us examples of what he's talking about, and here's a few references. In Acts seven, fifty eight it says, Then they then cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's Paul by the, as well. Saul is his Jewish name, Paul is his Roman name. So under the law, those who would have accused Stephen would have been the first to throw stones at him to kill him. And so they have to take off their robe and they lay their robes at the feet of Saul. He's holding on to their garments while they are unjustly killing Stephen under the guise of honoring God and the law. Hence he calls himself a blasphemer. So not only is, is Paul witnessing, but he's approving of what's being done. And then he escalates and goes, goes on the offensive himself as part of the first wave of persecution against the early church, which does not come from Rome, but comes from their own people. And we see in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, just what he believed he was doing. He is laying out his background and training and status to his readers there. He was a zealous keeper of the Torah, so much so that he kept it blamelessly. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. That's the tribe that, along with Judah, was not utterly destroyed by the Assyrians. He was a Pharisee trained under Gamaliel, one of the most important rabbis of the time. And in his letter to Timothy, he calls himself a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. All of his achievements, all of his zeal for God, he looks back on it and sees through it all. And sees himself for what he actually was. The chiefest, the worst, the foremost of sinners. See, it looked like zeal for God. I thought I was doing this for you, God, but it was actually blasphemy. He refused to recognize Christ as the Messiah and actively harmed Christ's church, which Christ says is harm done to him. He thinks he is serving God by hunting down Christians, but he is actively in opposition to God and what God is doing in the world. His sin kept him blind, but God had different plans for him. And in the face of his unbelief and hostility, something amazing occurs. And oftentimes, brothers and sisters, like Paul's misplaced zeal, think, thinking he's being zealous for God, he's actually blaspheming God. I cannot help but wonder in our churches how much of what we say we're doing for God is actually blasphemy against God. Paul says... The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So in spite of his unbelief, in spite of his blasphemy, in spite of his persecution, in spite of his insolent opposition to the very work of God he claimed to serve, that same God overflowed his heart with divine grace. See, Paul's zeal was good in a sense, but completely misdirected. And when he has this encounter with Christ, it reorients his entire life and then takes that zeal and orders it towards its proper goal and end. You thought you were serving me, but you were not. You were in active opposition to me. God takes him and says, now you will serve me. Acts nine four six 6, and falling to the ground, Acts 9, verses 4 through 6. He heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And after he receives his sight, he is baptized and immediately goes on the counter-offensive to his original offensive. He goes to the city, I'm going to take these Christians, I'm going to lock them up, I'm going to put, throw away the key. God needs me to do this for him because they are opposing the, 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 the work of God. And he gets to the city and the exact opposite happens. The God he claimed to serve he was actually blaspheming against and the God he claimed to serve revealed himself to him and he realized that Christ was who he said he was and then he goes into the city and then begins to do the exact opposite of what he was sent there to do. Instead of arresting people, he starts arguing with the religious leaders in the synagogue, showing through the scriptures that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he is the Christ. Acts 9 20 and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God and it even says after that the people start talking to himself isn't he the one that was sent here to arrest everybody he's now here too doing all of this preaching this and we see his attitude many years in the future for the reason why God showed his mercy to him he says this he says I received mercy that Jesus might display his perfect patience in me as an example to those who will come to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, God's mercy was extended to him so that his life, his experience, highlights that there's no one outside of the depths of the love and mercy and forgiveness that Christ offers. And once that forgiveness is received, the reorientation of our entire life changes as it's pointed towards God. I'm reading a very interesting book right now called Strange Rights. And in it, the author is talking about how in our culture, we hear a lot nowadays about how uh, we're a post-Christian culture. We hear things along the lines of, well, nobody goes to church anymore. People will say, religion is dying. Uh, You know, in the the early 2000s, there's the movement of the new atheists, right? Trying to, all religion is stupid and it's not built on anything and we should just go pure science and logic and reason. But But what this author shows is that religious belief is still there. It's just shifting. And it's shifting in our culture towards other things. So the author lays out a very interesting case. How, how the religious impulse that used to bring people to church is now driving them towards things like pop culture fandom. Things like Harry Potter and Star Wars and things like that where people are going to conventions dressed as characters, seeing one another, having this, this community based on this shared thing that they love, you know, maybe even quoting lines to each other from the shows, right? You know, the Star Trek fans took this really far, way, way back in the day, they invented a whole language and, like, taught to each other Klingon and, like, talk to each other in Klingon at conventions. It's crazy stuff, right? but these things rise up in culture and take the place of religious the religious oh they take the religious impulse and bring it somewhere else And then she says one of the interesting things is this is also happening in our culture uh, in regards to the political realm, right? There's an African-American scholar named uh, John McWhorter who wrote a book about how uh, a certain uh, aspect of, of political activism is itself a new type of religion. And he's writing this as an atheist. And he says, you know, there's these acts that you have to do to show that you're in this group, right? That you believe the right things, that you say the right things, that you do the right things. And then the author, uh, she also talks about how this plays itself out both on the progressive left and on the far right. How, How different rituals and things like that spring up and they replace the religious impulse. And in our era, our God then becomes ourselves. Our God becomes ourselves. Right? There's been a new rise in, in paganism. I saw something on social media the other day. And I was like, oh, shame. And it was a picture of like Thor carrying a hammer. But not like Marvel Thor. You know, like Norse, actual Norse Thor. And it's like, your God died on a cross. My God carries a hammer. And I was like... Yeah, but our God died on the cross and basically defeated your God and all the other gods. And then the followers of our God went and converted all of your people who worshiped the hammer-wielding God. So, nice try pagans, right? But there's this rise even in paganism too nowadays. But ultimately, we're worshiping ourselves. And in, 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 in with the rise of paganism and, and how the religious impulse is driving people towards fandom and on the far left and on the far right... Our God is ourselves. You may even hear people considering quasi-pseudo-mystics saying things like, you know, I am God, you are God, all is God. God is just within you. The divine. The spark of the divine, right? But this highlights, right, that the God that most people worship isn't the God revealed to us in Jesus Christ and in the scriptures. The gods that many worship is themselves. And they serve themselves with a zeal equal to the zeal that St. Paul had for the Torah, for the law. There's no desire they will not satisfy. There's no bad decision they will not make. There is no lust they will not satisfy. There is no passion they will not deny. If they believe that those things are getting in the way of becoming their true, authentic selves. This means family and friends and spouses are all disposable in the quest to worship at the altar of the self. and the quest for happiness. Many, many years ago, in a, a pastor of a church that uh, it was networked, right? the, the, the circles they used to roll with, I remember there was a pastor, right? <laughs> God, God save him. He, he, uh, he, he carried on an adulterous relationship, right? And uh, when they, he was confronted by it, he said, well, my needs aren't being met at home, so God has brought this woman to me to be my new like, helper. And so, I'm gonna just keep doing what I'm doing. And of course, you know, everything shut down um, and he lost everything. Everything is disposable and the quest for happiness. And this, just, this isn't just limited to, you know, to, to the example I gave, you know, there's a whole book industry about this. You know, there was an author, a successful author who divorced her husband and left everything and went to India on a spiritual pilgrimage, you know, to sort of like find herself and, and, and all that sort of thing and then met somebody over there and then married him and then many years later divorced him to marry somebody else. The quest for authenticity and happiness. Everything is disposable. And this gets distorted when it gets added to Christianity. Then salvation just becomes about God affirming the true authentic self already within you. That there's nothing wrong with us. That sin is not a spiritual condition which has separated us from God. Sin is just a social construct. It's just a a tool of oppression. Or anything that keeps us from realizing ourself, our true authentic self. And we can see this on display in large swaths of mainline Protestantism right now. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. We, like Paul, we are blinded by our spiritual condition. The thing that we are zealous for makes us actual blasphemers. Which is why we need to be... Sounds weird, right? But we need to be (laughs) re-blinded by the light that burns brighter than a thousand suns. The light that burns away our spiritual blindness so that we can behold Christ. And that light is Christ himself. Right? We heard in the, the story from the gospel, Jesus leaves the 99 sheep to find the one. And all of us are the one. Christ died for us all. Christ loves us. And his mercy avails for all and so brothers and sisters what we learn from St. Paul here is that we get to see ourselves for who and what we truly are our true authentic self that we think that if we leave everything behind we could just reach it and find it that true authentic self is a sinner in need of God's grace and mercy we strip all of that other stuff aside. We can see ourselves for who we are and we can see what we need. And here's the beautiful thing about this. I'm not talking about, you know, self-reflection. Like, oh, I'm such a terrible person. Oh, I'm so bad. I'm the chiefest of sinners like every day. You know, I said a bad word to my mom. I'm the, t- I'm the chiefest of sinners. Like, oh, I kicked the kitten. I'm the worst of sinners. You know, I, I, whatever, right? Insert silly example here. Oh, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. I'm the worst. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about... Just having a realistic understanding of who we are, right? And then, in that humility, we can see God's grace that he has already given us. And what he continues to give us, poured out upon us through Jesus Christ. And how that takes us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. How we stop then looking for and trying to find our true authentic self, As we are turned towards and reoriented towards the God who created us for union with himself. Christ died for us. Christ loves us. And his mercy and grace are available for all. And so as Paul said in his doxology to Timothy, right? He's writing all of this stuff and he's getting so excited. He says, and we say with him, and to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, invisible the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Zion's Stone Church. We're in the middle of a building repair campaign, and if you'd like to help, please go to www.gofundme.com slash Zion's Stone Church Repair Fund. We'd appreciate anything you'd be able to donate. If you're ever in the area, you're always welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 10:15 a.m. God bless you.